right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Nell Shamrell Harrington. Uh, greetings from not Seattle this time, but Tacoma, Washington. Uh, and with me is my co-host, Scott. Scott, how are you doing? Good. Uh, doing, gr doing great today. I'm coming from uh, the lovely Bend, Oregon, where it's kind of warm here for, for uh, a, a rarity. So, Awesome. Good. Well, we have a interesting episode for you this week. Uh, after the show last week, we got together, wondered what should we talk about? And a subject that I think has been, you know, hot on the minds of many people or very much on the minds of many people is the subject of monitoring. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of buzz about it. It seems like everyone agrees it's very, very important. But I think we need to break down a, a little bit on what it actually is and why it's important in a DevOps environment or in any technical environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's funny because so I, I'm I'm kind of looking at uh, I'm kind of cheating a little bit. And uh, you know, there's you know if you look in Mike Julian's book uh, Practical Monitoring, I he uh, all he has these the kind of the middle chapters. It's monitoring business, front end mm -hmm. monitoring, application monitoring, server monitoring, network monitoring, security monitoring. So that's like one of the best summaries I could have ever had on like what are all the different like levels at which you might need to do this monitoring. And so yeah, I thought that was really a great place to kind of like get us wrap some. Uh, some rigor around what we're talking about today because there's just so many different things, right? And I know we've got, we've got a lot of discussion points in our document. So I don't know, what, what do you think, Mel? I think it's great. Well, one thing I have noticed there's some confusion about is what's the difference between monitoring and alerting? Yeah, so, wow, that's it. So monitoring system doesn't necessarily have to send a notification. It could just be literally just tracking data it can mm -hmm. be um like triggering events that then maybe what you know in, in something like an auto scaling group increase the number of hosts that you have running or scales you know scales any number of things right and and so you know monitoring can do other things other than involve a human or just report information you know and alerting i i now this is this is Scott's definition is typically meaning that you are going to um, send some kind of message typically to a human is I think what we tend to think, but that message could also go into some kind of a message queue that then gets run by some kind of, you know, functional app, functional programming app that, that triggers something else. You know, there's any number of different ways that this could happen. So um, does it monitoring does or alerting and monitoring doesn't necessarily have to mean that something is going wrong in your application. You know, like if you have a really, you know, if you're getting a lot of traffic to your website, maybe like that's a good thing. And it's like, oh, this is, it's like a win, but you know, like it's like scale up our, the number of web instances we have, that kind of thing. So. Right. For me, uh, monitoring is what you do to your system. It's uh, how you, uh, monitoring is how you monitor is what I want to say. But it's how you keep insight into what your system is doing and how you gain the information, uh, whether the system is doing a good thing or doing a not so good thing. Uh, as far as alerting, I think alerting is something that can result from monitoring. Mm -hmm. but it's not monitoring itself. Um, I tell people the story sometimes about the time I was in, on call and I got paged at 10 p.m., 2 a.m., 4 a.m., and 7 a.m. <laughs> uh, for what it turned out were just ephemeral uh, things in our infrastructure that were cleared up by the time I got myself out of bed and logged on and took a look. Uh, so that, that, that for me is the, I mean, alerting is the thing that wakes me up and my spouse in the middle of the night yeah. is what I often think of it as. Well, it's funny because we might, if we were, if we were to go back and reinvent that, you know, the, the regular use of that word, it might be better to call it, you know, like events or something right. like that. Right. Because now, like, I think my, my default, like I said, association is to think you're getting a text message, a page back in the day. Maybe there are still people with pagers. Um, uh, my pager is my cell phone now, but yes. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, events instead of alerts, maybe. But yeah, but yeah. Awesome. And then I. So, where does logging come into monitoring? 
I mean, you know, for me, you know, what, what you're doing is you're logging that information so that you have some history so that if you need to look at performance or security or, um, you know, I said performance and security, what else mm -hmm. would be something that I'm, I don't know, you're, you're using that to be able to go back and um, it's like, it's the functional equivalent of like having a videotape in a bank where you're like being able to look at something after the fact and, um, you know, use as evidence or to figure some, some problem out, right? Right. Yeah. I think of it as I, you know, logging is my application or the components of my application telling me what they're doing at mm -hmm. any given time. And there's, there's two types of logs I found. Uh, one is structured and that's often in JSON or YAML where you have a key uh, like CPU percentage, let's say, and then there's a value uh, for that, which makes it really easy to, well, not easy, but it makes it possible to program an interface on top of it or to query it and get, get more uh, information that way or get exactly the information you need at any given time versus unstructured logs, which I have also dealt with quite a bit, where it, I think it's more meant to be read by human than machine, though I find them less readable uh, than, and than structured ones. But I remember I used to work on an application where we had four different uh, VMs running it. And I would open up a Tmux window, open up a shell session into each of those four servers, and try to see which one, or if we were seeing errors, try to see which server it was uh, occurring on by watching all four of them at the same time. Now that makes my head hurt. Uh, it, it's, it, may, it still makes my head hurt, yeah. uh, particularly when we have infrastructures of you know, things like hundreds or thousands of containers. So I think log collection is a, a, a good thing to bring up in this case as a way of, you know, you, um, I think most applications, maybe not most, but a lot of applications of any sort of significant size are running on multiple pieces of infrastructure now. And yeah. it's way easier to figure out what's going on by having the logs in one place uh, versus uh, having to do a bash shell into every system and try to see which one it's showing up on. And in the, the, the structured logs are at some level a response to the fact that scale has become a big problem to manage. And so you need to like kind of make it somewhat easy to, to be able to bring all of this together into some kind of unified interface, you know, at in scale, if I'm going to use some kind of buzzwordy thing, right. Mm -hmm. uh, you're right. And I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I, I have to imagine that everything, you know, we're logging to a flat file that are unstructured that was purely just like, well, it's like the simplest, fastest way, you know, you know, back in the day when we were, you know, we're talking about like sub gigahertz processors and really slow hard drives and all kinds of stuff. I mean, what, you know, and then what's happened is you have this legacy on the, in all these applications, the Apaches and, you know, basically any kind of web thing is where my mind default goes to this, right? Is we have all this legacy of these types of systems because they're just so easy to do and um, so reliable. And so now instead of replacing the, de the default with something that's more structured, like you're talking about, now we're doing this thing where we're like aggregating logs and shipping them over to something <laughs> and then storing them in long term and all kinds of things. So, yeah, it kind of feels like uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, what, what's the thing? Pan gold mining, the thing where they, they have the mm -hmm. flat surface and they bring up water in it and then kind of swirl it around to see if there's, there's yeah. gold in it. That, that's what it feels like sometimes <laughs> trying to parse unstructured logs at the very least, yeah. Uh, yeah. hoping that the, the little nugget of gold or little nugget of information that I need will uh, make itself known to me. Yeah. And, you, and then you start getting, especially when you, like when you, when you're using log aggregation, one of the things I often worry about is like, is everybody reporting all of their log information as well? It's like, you gotta like have some, you have to have some monitoring to then make sure that all these systems are reporting this information back to this central system. And how do you, you know, like who watched the watch, who watches exactly. the watchers, you know, that kind of thing. So. Right. So something that, something I find, I mean, there's a lot of monitoring tools out there. There's a lot of different components you can use in monitoring, but I find that there's two main different types of monitoring software. One is Pool, or Pull, P-U-L-L. -L. Uh, it's summertime, so I was thinking P-O-O-L for a second there, but no, P-U-L-L, -L, Pool is in Pull something. 
And that's one where there's some service, some sort of central service that is uh, requests each remote node that's being monitored uh, to send data about itself. And I believe that's the agent model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, push by con contrast means every single thing that you want to monitor uh, just pushes its data to another location. Uh, so that can be Datadog, that can be uh, some other service, but uh, the client itself, it just, it knows where it's supposed to send the data and it just sends it there uh, rather than waiting for the central service to request or to request that they send it there. Yeah, and syslog would be an example of something mm -hmm. that is push where it's like you configure your app to say, send to this endpoint, and that endpoint just sits there and just accepts everything, right? So, um, I mean, it's funny because even um, something that does like a Nagios check where you're checking up port 80 on a server, that is essentially some form of, uh, uh, is that, a, well, I don't know. Now I'm like questioning myself. Is that a polar question? I, what do you think? Uh, like a health check? Yeah, uh, health check, yeah. I think that is, I'm cheating and looking at my highlights from Mike Julian's book. Uh, I think that one is a pull. Yeah, yeah it is. Not, yeah, it's a pull. Yeah. yeah. I'm, like, I'm like talking, so I can't even stop to think for a moment. So <laughs> It's all right. It's all right. So yeah, that is pull. And that's a classic one. I mean, that's, that's the first thing when I would set up a piece of infrastructure that if it was a web application that I would usually set up, just let me, you know, query the health endpoint and find out uh, whether it's working or not. And if it's not, let me know. I mean, that's the, at the core of like AWS's, mm -hmm. you know, auto scaling and everything. Those, I mean, it has multiple health checks, but that's one of like, if that fails, it just, you know, it takes that one out of the pool for, for uh, the load balancer. So, mm -hmm. so I guess another um, question ahead. we could go to is what should you monitor? And I think this is highly dependent. I think, I think the first question you should ask is how do I know whether my, what does working mean? Mm -hmm. uh, does that mean uh, users are able to access the home page of my application? Uh, does that mean the CPU utilization is under a certain amount? You know, what, what does working mean and what indicates my whatever it is, is not working the way I expect it to? What does working mean? Um, I mean, I think you're, you're trying to, you're trying to like think about like, what's kind of like the most high level simple thing first. And so you would, you know, if assuming you have just like, if you're, if you're monitoring from an external source, so like what we had talked about with monitoring, like a, is this web app up? Um, you know, you start at that high level, right? And, and obviously if you have multiple domains, then maybe you're monitoring each domain um, that is, maybe served by that same application. So like in the example of like, you know, your marketing site is www and your application is app dot mm -hmm. whatever the domain is, right? And so you're kind of looking at each of these things and, but what's happening is you can't from, from the external sense, you are not monitoring, um, you can't monitor, monitor individual pieces of that application. And so you're, then you're monitoring on the server level. And I think, you know, as some of this is you try to like, if you don't know where to start, you maybe you Google and try to figure out, find some best practices. But typically um, I would say like, make sure you make sure that you are monitoring anything that is core, so to speak. So web instances, databases, caching systems, you know, like what happens when those caching systems go down, um, building failover into that. I mean, I guess I'm getting off the monitoring topics some level, but um, you know, like what are all the core pieces and you start by monitoring those. And then, you know, obviously you need to monitor on things that could run out of resources. Like mm -hmm. if you're saving things to S3, you never need to monitor how much you're storing in S3. Um, but you do have to monitor how much memory are you using in your Redis cache or how much, you know, like, you know, I don't know, obviously databases stored in the cloud, you're not having to, typically you're not having to worry about how large is the database getting. It's something that's very much a secondary resource, but, you know, I would say you kind of look at those first functional things and then dig into the, what services are important on my server and look at those individually. And then, I don't know, it's, I, 
my typical feeling is not to try to optimize for stuff that that's that's not in like your knowledge mm-hmm. view at the moment. You know, don't go super deep unless you know that you need this because what happens is you every time you add something you're adding like monitoring memory on a server or um, ram on a server when you don't need to monitor those things creates like some kind of technical debt or some kind of noise Noise. distracts you so sorry i know that was a long talk go ahead now no it's all right i mean i mean when i was first getting started with monitoring uh, my infrastructure when i grew beyond one piece of infrastructure uh, i won't wanted to have, I wanted to be, have a room where it's like mission control, basically, uh, for NASA and have, and I envision having all these monitors, and we had some of them in the office, you know, uh, monitoring the CPU, monitoring the memory usage, etc. We put them up, they look really cool for visitors. It didn't really give us, uh, it very rarely gave us something of value. Um, it, It was something where, you know, if, uh, disk usage is one I've had to watch, uh, mm-hmm. partly because of logging. Uh, mm-hmm. Before centralized logging or exporting your logs was really uh, common, uh, it was easy to uh, run out of space on the disk of your infrastructure just from the logs getting too big or getting too much historical data in them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, I think, uh, you know, we all want to be mission control, uh, but I think it's important to figure out, you know, what metrics indicate whether or not your users are having a good experience Mm -hmm. and then prioritizing those you know what should we wake someone up in the middle of the night for and what can probably wait until morning Mm -hmm. yeah it um your story made me think about so when i worked at uh i'll just say a big sports team or a big sports business um Mm -hmm. i i was a and this was this so this is corporate internal IT monitoring you know corporate inter, corporate network monitoring and like we used SCOM which is System Center Operation Manager and it was literally this thing that was pulling all this it had agents so it was pulling all this information pulling up every event log and it was just pulling in like thousands of things every day and so much of it was just noise and it was just and we spent hours and hours and hours looking through this every day and i just it just seemed like even while we were doing it it just seemed like there was i don't know i didn't feel like we had like a lot of good solutions because we were supposed to look at all all this stuff and we were allowed to set up rules and stuff but at the same time there was just thousands of different crazy errors that had like nothing really actionable to it and gosh i mean if it's not really actionable, I mean, we all have so many things to do. Like mm-hmm. why just create a bunch of work that's not really valuable? You know, I just didn't, you know, it just boggles the mind sometimes. Right. And this might be going off topic just slightly, but I'll bring it back right afterward. Uh, so when deciding whether what to wake someone up, uh, wake someone up for or not, I, I often think of the story. My wife was an intern at a law firm a couple of summers ago and their database went down uh, one day, uh, but their only system administrator was literally at her mother's funeral. They did not call her in that case. They were, they were in the position, fortunately, where they could just you know, shut down business for the rest of the day and then have her deal with it the next day when she came back. But mm-hmm. I, I think you know, we, metrics, it seems so machine-like and we get so excited about it, but we remember there have to be humans who respond to this mm-hmm. and what's worth the response and what's not. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Huge, hugely important. Right. So also in Mike Julian's book, which as our listeners may have picked up, that's the book uh, we (laughs) read in preparation for this episode, uh, partly because he's a friend of Lee's. uh, And I found it interesting because it's not uncommon for technical books to give anti-patterns and patterns. That's really, really, or patterns and anti-patterns. That's really useful. Uh, but he started with the anti-patterns. And I think for something as nebulous as monitoring, you know, what do I monitor when I can theoretically monitor, you know, 10,000 things? I, I think it's, it's good to have an idea of what not to do. And I remember the first one he listed was tool obsession. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think we've gotten more into this since uh, we started getting a lot of swag at uh, tech <laughs> uh, conferences, which might, which is the point of giving out swag. Uh, mm-hmm. A company wants you to remember them. And if you have a t-shirt uh, for some monitoring service and 
you're in a meeting saying, all right, what should we use to monitor our systems? You kind of notice the t-shirt or the mouse pad or something. But uh, one of the things uh, Mike highlights is that what works for one company may not work for you necessarily. Uh, if it's different, uh, it will different technical domains and dif different business problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, see the tool obsession. It's kind of funny because I would say in my early, so I spent my first 10 years working in corporate environments. Um, and there was a large number of web apps that I manage, but oftentimes I spent so much time on, like I said, things like, systems and um a lot of times in the windows world like there's just like you use microsoft stuff and it's kind of like the default like i said using system center operations manager um and a lot of times this the, you know the the management would have been so much easier using you know like a dozen different tools and i i totally have have been in in environments where i just didn't understand the extra cost and complexity of, of the monitoring tools that were implemented when there wasn't like, I, I feel like a lot of it was just kind of like drop in and like, Hey, here, we're going to use this monitoring tool because we need to monitor things and we need to have, and it was because it wasn't, none of it was really, at least as a user, it wasn't attached to some, Hey, we have to, we're trying to meet some kind of compliance. And so we're going to be look like auditing something and we need to like, you know, so we can present a report to auditors or something. None of that was like driving that so that, that, that we picked this tool. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, Microsoft has this tool or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I just, it's, it's always been interesting to see how there's not a lot of time given to like what's really important to the business and in the checkbox monitoring, which is something he actually mentions as the anti-pattern of just, just hey, I can say, monitor all these things, but should I even do it? You know? Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, there are environments like highly secure environments or such where you do literally have a checklist uh, that, that you have to meet. I remember I was uh, on site with a contractor who worked in the national security space and we'll leave it at that mm. uh and one of the engineers on my team almost got into a fight with one of the engineers on their team about uh encryption algorithms and we finally had to take aside the engineer on my team and say okay it's not about which one is superior uh, he literally has a checklist mm. uh that he needs to show they're using one of these one of these uh uh, uh Algorithms. So, I mean, and, and I'm sure they have the, that for monitoring as well. So, if you're in a highly secure environment like that or any highly regulated environment, yes, you might have to use a checkbox. But if you're not, it, it's not, again, we've talked about signal to noise. And with monitoring, it's especially important not to have noise that you don't need. There'll be plenty of stuff with signal in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally, right. totally. Another, um, and oh, go ahead. I don't know. Is there any specific tools that you think are worth discussing? Uh, Nagios is the most common one. And yeah. that's honestly probably the one that I have the most experience with. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of documentation on it and a lot of use cases, which does make it useful. But I, I, I do know when I go to tech conferences and I say I'm using Nagios for something, I, I get judged. <laughs> I'm not a hundred anymore. It's too old. I know exactly. Or something, right? And, and then I want to tell them that I use Vim and see their reaction on that. Uh, but <laughs> what about you? What monitoring tools do you think are worth discussing? You know, I mean, I think, I think if you're on AWS or you're, you know, whatever cloud you're in, I think you should use their default monitoring tools first. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if you're moving, I, I, I would not lift and shift my monitoring without like strongly reevaluating um, what the purposes of those kinds of things are. I, and I, my, my general sense is that, you know, there's this kind of almost obsession in some organizations about having multi-cloud. And so then they don't like want to, they don't want to get entrenched with using any of the cloud tools. But the thing is that if you use the cloud tools, they've, built this like really beautifully tight integration where, oh, well, this, this error occurs and then we can, and it creates an event and this event then can trigger 15 other things or one other thing or whatever you want. Like, like I talked, I keep bringing up the idea of auto scaling. Right. Um, and so, you, you know, Hey, let's add another instance or keep adding instances or shut down bad instances or whatever that is. Um, you know, and I just think that there's, 
that stuff is so tightly coupled and there's no, I mean, there, there's the, the configuration mm-hmm. has to be like, like a 10th of the amount of time. And then you scale that by the number of times that you do those configurations. So if it saves, if it's, a, it's, it's 10% as much configuration work and you, and you do this 50 times or 500 times or 5,000 times, it really scales. And obviously it's mm-hmm. best to be doing these things with configuration management tools, you know, using right. the chefs, the puppets, the Terraform, whatever you're doing to, to kind of configure stuff. But I mean, um, you know, I just think that it, there's just so, there's so many beautiful advantages of using native cloud, you know, stuff that I, I don't know. It's just crazy because if it saves, like I, I see these studies and I've never experienced this personally, but I see these studies where they talk about how, you know, when you move things to the cloud and you really focus on automation and stuff like that, that it, it literally reduces headcount and it increases the, you know, increases the number of servers that each person can manage. And, you know, so I'm not like, don't believe me, believe what's, what's been done by studies with, and things like um, Nicole Forsgren, what is that thing? Accelerate. Called? Accelerate. Thank you. It's, I, I had it on my desk until like this afternoon and then I took it off. So, yeah. I, I took a picture of my uh, pet bunnies uh, sitting by that book and sent it to her with the caption data bunnies. I think they <laughs> nibbled at it. So I took it away, but yeah, yeah that one the, the applies the sign a very rigorous. I mean, Dr. Nicole Forsgren is a doctor of, yeah. of uh, philosophy or information science, and it, it applies the science to it, which is pretty cool. To see. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and they've, I think she said they, the survey was done by 50,000 different people, I think, or something like that. So it's, it's a significant thing. And um, for there to be bias in the information, there would have to be structural, you know, cross industry, cross world, like, you know, everybody's trying to scam this thing. And so I don't, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's going to be a pretty good source of, of information and what's going on in, in the world, I think. So, and there's, and there's other people that have done like significant serve, research around how automation saves you um, time yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. among other things. Another anti-pattern, which made me laugh a little bit because we are a DevOps podcast. Uh, and the, the, the idea of monitoring as a job, because I mean, sometimes you hear a lot saying, you know, you, you, you DevOps should not be someone's job. It should be something you know, shared by the entire organization. And I think with monitoring, it's similar. I think it's common, especially in big companies, to get in a situation where we have a team, or at that team's the monitoring team, and they apply all the monitoring to all of our applications. The problem, as we mentioned before, is it's the people who write the applications that probably will know what the most valuable metrics or most valuable things to monitor are because they know how the application works. And they're going to know uh, what indicates the application is not working the way it should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they're more likely to, to be able to make those, hey, we should try to monitor this thing. They're going to, as I'm fixing bugs and this and that, they can be like, hey, if we, mon- we might want to monitor some particular part of the application um, because, you know, I'm, I think this is a, something of concern. You know, I don't have a good example off the top of my head. I'm trying to think of, I don't know, long running tasks or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, um, yeah. Awesome. And then let's see here. Another one he lists is using monitoring as a crutch. And I have experienced this personally. I mean, the the classic example that comes to mind is monitoring the CPU usage on a uh, system because there's some processes that are draining the CPU on it that we don't know what they are. Uh, So we just uh, get an alert when when the CPU CPU reaches a certain percentage, and then we reboot the system, and it's okay for a while. That that happened at Apollo 11, come to think of it. They had some processes that were eating memory, and they had to keep rebooting the, the computer. People have been trying turning it on and turning it off again, and it worked in that case uh, since the 1960s. But yeah, it's, it's using it as a way, short-term, sometimes you have to do that, but mm. long-term, if you're using it as a way to make up for a not well, not well architect, architected code or infrastructure, it's way better in the long run to go and fix the fix the code or the infrastructure that's causing it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's funny because I was actually like literally thinking of an example of the exact same thing where memory Java application using too much memory reboot the machine, and that is a 
I think that is an acceptable short-term thing. If, if you know, you're like, well, we don't have budget or we don't have resources to fix this and like really rewrite this or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, some, in some instances, I, I, I read some thing earlier today where I think this was on Twitter. Somebody had shared something on Twitter where there was literally some web service that nobody, it was written in Java and nobody knew where the source code was for it. And so they, and they had statically entered somebody's email address. And so they just, they couldn't do anything about it. So they just had to leave that system in place to, you know, until they got resources to fix it. So it's kind of crazy. <laughs> right. I once was working on a project where someone had set up this application on Heroku. No one knew who set up the Heroku account, whose account it was. Uh, eventually what we did was we migrated it to another account that we knew we had control of and then pointed the DNS at that new one and just let the other one sit there until whoever set up the account got the, got the notice that uh, they needed to pay for it or uh, until it eventually got shut off. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because um, I, I, I don't know if I even, I don't even if I mentioned this, but I, I think I briefly mentioned it, but it, um, and I, because this, this literally happened to me a couple of years ago where I realized, so I, we, we've at different times had apps on Heroku and, at one point, Heroku changed, they, they used to offer like free backups. I don't know what it was. It was like a weekly backup and like a seven day daily backup. That Eventually they just killed that. And I either was like off the mailing list or something like that. And I just had no clue. And so I, I somehow was checking in this kind of manually. And I realized that, um, that we didn't have a backup for a long time. I'm mm -hmm. not gonna, I don't remember how long it was, but I, it was something that I was like, oh my God, I can't believe um, that I didn't have some kind of better system in place for making sure that this was happening. So, ah, yeah, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's funny. So, um, one of my favorite things I did, uh, one of the projects that I did was around BCDR business continuity, disaster recovery mm -hmm. stuff. And it's something that I see, especially on small companies really neglect this process of actually restoring data. And I, I'm getting totally off the monitoring topic at this point, but it's like, restoring your databases and making sure things actually work. And, and it was just something that was a really valuable experience for me, but uh, I'll get back on the monitoring game here yeah. a little bit. <laughs> I do remember, I, I don't remember who it was, but at a conference, I heard someone say, maybe even Adrian Concroft at uh, HashiCorp, having a disaster recover data center or having a failover data center that you've never actually failed over to is just a waste of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, but we, we can do, I think we should, we should do an episode on just uh, disaster recovery. Yeah, yeah, point. definitely. Uh, I have a lot to like to share or discuss about at least on that. So, yeah. but in the meantime, the last anti-pattern uh, Mike listed was manual configuration, which mm -hmm. yes, if it, if it, if you need to manually configure your monitoring every time you spin up a new system or change the system, it's it, it's gonna get it's gonna get forgotten. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just it, it's gonna it's a step that's gonna be uh, missed, and yeah. then you won't be, have the benefit of monitoring that system because it won't be working the way it's supposed to. Yeah, and it would maybe you slightly configure it wrong, or all there's all kinds of ways that 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 you could, you know, screw it up by manual configuration, right? So you just forget stuff. It's, yeah. Um, right. Well, we've talked about some anti-patterns. Now let's talk about some patterns. And one he mentioned, which is really interesting to me, was composable monitoring. Mm -hmm. The idea that you don't have one, just one monitoring solution you use for all your systems, but you have different pieces of monitoring software that maybe, uh, you know, monitor different things that you can then compose together to get that meaningful picture of your system at any given time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so an example of that would be you're using PagerDuty to do external checks and Nagios to do internal checks, right? right? So those, that's an easy example. Right. One uh, I, I think I, I've used was we used New Relic for application level monitoring. It was for a Rails application. And if that was throwing errors, they would go to New Relic. And uh, I would think we had PagerDuty wired up to New Relic and it would alert us uh, on that when we needed to look at it. Uh, but we used a Datadog for information about our infrastructure itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that 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 was a combination that that worked well for that particular application's need at that particular yeah. time. Yeah, and I don't mean to, to imply that PagerDuty can't do more than external monitoring. Oh, yeah. I was just trying to say, hey, you know, this is one way that 
right? You're piecing these things together. So, yeah. Right. And then the other one, I think we've discussed this uh, other monitoring pattern is monitoring from the user perspective. I, I, and what I think of is, you know, I, I, think, I don't remember the calculation, but for ha however many milliseconds Amazon.com is down, how much money they lose. Mm -hmm. uh, so they really want to know if a user is clicking on Amazon and it's not working or they're trying to check out and it's not working, the, the users are the ones driving the revenue for them. And they mm -hmm. want to know when a user is having a bad experience first. Yeah. And that, you know, and that is essentially application performance monitoring, right? And so that's looking at, it's attempting to sample a, what, some subset of the traffic, maybe on a specific host or on the site as a whole, or on some service, you know, that's running in that, like, so like login service or checkout service, right? And then you're trying to use the sampling to, tell you, hey, is thing, are things getting better? Are things getting worse? Are we staying within some acceptable range? Um, yeah. Right. And then the next one he, he uh, wrote, which I heartily agree with, is the idea of buy, not build. Mm -hmm. As engineers, we love to build things. And it's really tempting when, we're, uh, when we see a technical problem to think, oh, well, I can come up with my own solution that will work perfectly for us and we'll maintain it and it'll be great. I think unless you're at like Google, Google writes its own monitoring software most likely, mm -hmm. which is fine. And they, they make some of them available as open source projects. But if it's not your core competency, usually you should buy the solution versus trying to roll your own because it will never be less money uh, to, to roll your own unless you're at massive scale because you have to count in salary, count in maintenance time, count in time that's not going into whatever your core competency is. Uh, one of the questions I ask whenever I interview uh, or when I'm interviewing for something is I always ask, do you uh, build your, well, I, 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 to always, always ask, do you build your own invoicing system? And if they do, and there's not an, if they're not an invoicing customer, there's not a really good reason that they do. To me, that's a red flag because those are ridiculous. You've got leap years and time zones, and those are ridiculously hard to manage. I think I might, change that to monitoring actually. Uh, if I'm interviewing for more infrastructure focused jobs, job, do you write your own uh, monitoring software? And there could be a good reason that they yeah. do, but I, I think that's rare. Unless again, you're at Google or Amazon size. What made you, what, so you've used the asking, you've used the question of, are you writing your own invoicing software before yes. you're saying, what made you decide that that was the thing to use? I, work, I worked at a company uh, that wrote its, our, it was not, our, we were not an invoicing software company, but in the early days of it, uh, someone had written invoicing software for them because they thought that would save them money. And it may have at that time, but every time we went from daylight savings time to standard time, it broke. Uh, months are not consistent in their length at all. Uh, and leap years are a plague <laughs> when, yeah. on, on invoicing software. So I just, I remember how many years, I think you man years, not just or person years, not just person day hours or person days we lost to it. And that was not spent on the stuff that we actually were selling to the market. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, I, yeah. It's funny because it's like, I'm sitting here going, what, were they like writing everything? Cause I like when yes. I build stuff, like when I build stuff, I'm using all these nice, beautiful Python libraries that are obviously doing things at the back end side. And then on the front end side, the JavaScript, I'm using little JavaScript drop in, you know, date mm -hmm. pickers and stuff like that. And so to me, I'm like sitting there going, what, like, what, how could, like, you know, what are, why are they even dealing with dates, man? That's like a problem that you just don't even want to go near. Yeah, this this was a place that had a, a severe case of not invented here syndrome, which that's an entire other episode we can talk about yeah. about that. Um, I think with the rise of SaaS services, that's starting to become less common um, mm. because there are very well known services that have uh, like at that company too. We uh, we wrote our own chat software. We didn't use a third party chat system, which also broke a lot and. 
Uh, but anyway, uh, the the <laughs> next pattern I, <laughs> yeah. he recommends let's is... Let's get off that topic. Yeah, yeah, let's get off that topic. The next pattern he recommends is continual improvements. And this one spoke to me a lot too, because it, with a lot of things... DevOps related or non-DevOps related, we'd like to think, okay, I've set up monitoring for my system. I'm done. Mm -hmm. It's never done. Because mm -hmm. your application, your infrastructure changes as your business changes. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, um, I, sorry, this is uh, sort of one of my, one of my favorite kind of books is um, High Output Management by Andy Grove. And one of the things, you know, like the, and I've been, I've been kind of rehashing or rereading this in this last week. And one of the things he talks about how everything is a process, including the monitoring, right? I mean, I, like everything you do is a part of some process and, and um, you know, like when you're looking at things like your, you know, your KPIs, whatever those are. Like, so if you're, if you're keeping track of your site's uptime or, or, you know, how often you're pushing code and those types of things, I feel like, like the, when you're, as you're looking at those things and working to improve those and, and doing all these things, like the monitoring is just another process that's involved in helping you execute and, um, and kind of just manage that over that whole process. So I feel like it's, um, you know, like, I don't know. I just, it's funny cause it just baffles me sometimes whenever, whenever I feel like, Oh, we're just done with that. You know, we don't have to mess with that anymore. And it, um, and I just like it. Sorry. I'm just going to like babbling at this point, but <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I, and, and I understand that there's so many things. And I think, the DevOps movement in particular recognizes this, it's never going to be done. There's a lot of things it's never going to be easy. It can be easier or it can be possible. I think that's the, the main part. And it can be easier uh, than it was before. But I was chatting with someone recently about technology in general. And I said, you know, all the easy techno technological problems are already solved. Mm -hmm. uh, we, I, I wouldn't call it an old industry by any means, but I mean, the stuff that a really young industry could solve, you know, with one person or mm -hmm. with, you know, one person locking themselves in their basement for a, a, not a year, but for a month and then coming out with this perfect solution to it. I think those problems have, have all already been solved. So now we're dealing with what happens next, the stuff none of us can solve on our own yeah. and that may never be completely solved, but we can continuously make it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anything else uh, we'd like to talk or you'd like to discuss uh, monitoring wise before we go to picks? You know, I, you know, I, I, um, you know, security, I think is something that is important. Um, and I think I don't have a really great answer as to what specifically you should focus on monitoring, but I, I, I'm going to reinforce something that I shared as a pick um, that the stuff that Amazon is doing with the, Oh gosh, I'm trying, I'm trying to think what it's called, but it, they essentially are, are writing proofs to that are things that allow you to do that, that are creating automated checks at scale. And you're seeing things it's, it um, it's expressed in things like AWS config and AWS systems manager. And there's all these things that are in there that are, that are kind of, it's an, a, a way of automating security, but it's also this way more sophisticated check than you're capable of doing with, but with writing some script because they're kind of, they're doing one of the things that they show on, if you watch some of the demo, the videos around it, and we'll add this to the show notes is that when the, the, they actually have the ability or they're, they, in the demo, I show that they're doing an example of somebody actually writing code and they're showing that like, even as they're writing code, they're making mistakes on like, at what point there do you need to encrypt the data to keep the data encrypted and not um, be exposed or whatever. And so there's just a lot more to it than very simple kind of. Um, and I mean, I think this is why we have security professionals is because you can really dig way down. And I think it's really important to do that. And, but you know, obviously you have to, with things like logging, a lot of times you have to make sure you're protecting that, that those logs. 
and you have to do it in a way so much in a in a way such that that you can if you if you are living in a in an industry where you have SOX compliance or HIPAA compliance or those types of things, you have to be able to prove that maybe that these logs have not been edited. And so you have to, so a lot of what you're, it's kind of funny because this is monitoring, but it's also like, like it kind of bleeds the edge. Right. And um, I think that stuff is important and it's not an easy thing to do, but it's something that's underappreciated. And, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, that's so, yeah, that's what I got. <laughs> I, I love the idea of thinking of it as writing proofs. Yeah. Starting, you know, starting with defining what a good state is or what a known good state is. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, let's definitely add that to the show notes. I definitely would like to take a look at that, that demo myself. It's, I think it's called the automated reasoning team. Um, but yeah, we'll get that uh, automated reasoning group. So it's really, really, really interesting stuff. So. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, we're starting to get near the end of our, our time. So let's move on to picks. Uh, one pick I have, I was in Berlin, uh, Germany, and I could just pick the entire city of Berlin. It's glorious. Uh, but I was staying near Checkpoint Charlie, and I went to the Berlin Wall Museum at Checkpoint Charlie. And it's fascinating. Uh, it's a private collection, private museum. But one of the things that's really cool is they have all these little devices or ways that people uh, sm- try to smuggle themselves or smuggle other people from East Berlin to West uh, Berlin back during the Cold War. Uh, and so there's cars with special compartments. There's suitcases where you can fit a child in. Uh, I think it only worked once, but there's a balloon that someone used to uh, raise themselves off the ground and go over the wall and come back down. It's, it's fascinating. And I recommend if you go to it, give it at least half a day because it was so fun to dig into not just all the artifacts they had, but also all the narration and writing around it. So highly recommend that. My other uh, pick is the game Tetris 99 on the Nintendo Switch. This is Battle Royale Tetris and it is awesome. Uh, the way you do Battle Royale and Tetris is every time you clear a row, uh, you send it to someone else's board. Uh, so you've got 99 players it starts with, and slowly they eliminate each other until it's just a, until there's only one left. And it's absurdly fun. And it's a great way if I just want a break for like 20 minutes or something, I can easily get in, if I'm not doing well, probably four, five games. Uh, if I am doing well, maybe two. Uh, but it's just, it's way more fun than I than I ever would have expected it to be. Nice. I like it. Yeah, I, I was actually in Berlin a couple of years ago, uh, like maybe, I guess it was like a year and a half ago. Yeah, it's really, really neat city to uh, to bounce around in. Um, so, so are you just the two picks for you? You going to do a third or? Uh, just those two picks for me. All right, cool. All right, so, um, you know, I... I um, I definitely, my, I definitely want to reinforce my pick of the automated reasoning and I'm, I'm going to send a kind of, there's like a blog and then there's a video specifically with the head of the automated reasoning group um, that uh, Byron Cook that I'll, I'll include in there. Um, the, you know, the other book, I, I've got a book I'm going to plug and it's Atomic Habits by James Clear. Uh, this is somebody who's, you know, just been writing on the internet for, I don't know, probably better part of eight or eight years, um, get, built like a really good following. And I bought pretty much every course that he ever put out there. And it's just, he takes all of these books that are kind of being published out there about habits and, you know, the way we work and our brain and all kinds of these different things. And he kind of brings it all together into like a, some really digestible packages. And so one of the, my favorite tips that he, um, that he gives around habits is that every action is a vote for the type of person we want to be. And so that means that if, you know, if, if, um, you know, if we're eating a cookie every day, <laughs> we're, we're, we're making that vote for the, per- the type of person that eats a cookie every day. Uh, but if we then substitute it with a banana, you know, then, then we're, we're kind of slowly changing it. And, and habits are oftentimes like, like dozens or hundreds of different little small actions over and over and over again. And I think that's a really, really powerful thing. And another thing he does is he talks about how um, 
a lot of times if you want to build a new habit, it's easier to start the, to build the habit of showing up. So, you know, he talks about this guy who um, was a, I don't know, it's a customer of his that, uh, that this guy just literally built the habit of, sh- of like driving to the gym every day and like walking into the gym and spending like, I think one minute or five minutes at the gym. He didn't actually have to work out or do anything. It was just the building the habit of like going there every day. And this was, it's just a really powerful way to, um, to, to change behaviors that like, you don't even have to commit to doing anything like strenuous or difficult or painful or whatever you want to call it. It's just like, you're building the habit of like going there. And once you can get yourself there, then you can, either decide to do something or not, you know? So I think that's a really, that I think he has a lot, he codifies a lot of really interesting ideas and really digestible, actionable ways. And so I, I think he, he's by far one of my favorite writers right now. So, and I I will go ahead and give the other greatest hits writers. So Ryan holiday, um, I pretty much am a big fan of everything he does, but specifically the obstacle is the way. Um, And I think what he basically does is takes, all of this Greek and, you know, classical Roman philosophy and brings it into kind of the modern day. And he'll take these simple ideas and then pair them with somebody that's been alive in the last 200 years or so and, and, and show how they exemplify these actions. And, um, I just think his stuff is super approachable. And like I was explaining to a friend of mine yesterday, the, there was this guy he, who was a young man and when his parents died and some guy came in and like was managing his estate, so to speak, and like stole most of his money. And so whenever, you know, he wasn't able to go to school. And so this guy spent his whole childhood, young adulthood, you know, working on becoming a great order and, and like doing things like giving a speech as he's running up a hill and sticking rocks in his mouth to give speeches and, and he used this, this skill that he, like, this was somebody with a speech impediment and everything. And he used this skill to then go in front of a magistrate and try to argue his case to get back his, what's remained of his fortune. And, but in, the, in doing this, he became like one of Rome's greatest orators. Um, and so I, there's just lots of really beautiful um, ways about like taking, um, adversity and kind of turning it on its head or whatever. And, um, you know, it's funny because I think I probably only face really small adversity in my life, but I I find the stories very powerful. So that's all I got picks wise. So that, that wraps me up for this week. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks, uh, Scott for being here and thank you to our listeners. Uh, we, Lee is going to be out for the next month. He's got some stuff he's doing, uh, but he'll be back in about four weeks or so. And in the meantime, it'll be the two of us and occasionally Chuck. Yeah. So, maybe some interviews, hopefully. So woo-hoo. I hope so. Yeah. Awesome. Well, have a wonderful day, everyone and take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.